Good afternoon, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. It is good to be here today, and it has been very good to worship with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I am excited to meditate on God's Word together with you today. You know, if you, every verse in Scripture ultimately points us to Jesus Christ the King. Uh, but if you can speak of a pinnacle of Scripture, of a high watermark in Scripture, I think you can make a pretty good argument that our text today, and perhaps including the text that Ron is going to bring to us next week, uh, is right near the top of the most important elements that we have in God's Word. And so I am very excited to meditate on Scripture with you today. Our text is Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 47. Mark 15, 21 to 47. And we're going to start by reading the text together. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate 
and ask for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would take this familiar text and cause it to come alive in our hearts in a fresh way this morning. Lord, have your way in this place and bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In John chapter 10, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he uses a metaphor that has a rich historical significance for the children of Israel. In this metaphor, God is a shepherd, and his people are sheep. Now, we don't have time today in this sermon to explore all of the significance of God as a shepherd to us, but I do want to draw your attention to one point that Jesus makes in John 10, verses 11 through 13. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand, and he cares nothing for the sheep. Now, I want to draw your attention to something very simple. What are the credentials of the Good Shepherd? Capital G, capital S. What distinguishes Jesus from the imposters, from the hired hands who are not really shepherds at all? Well, it's easy. The Good Shepherd cares enough for his sheep that he's willing to put himself in danger. The Good Shepherd is willing to die. And I think that we understand this intuitively. What, what's the difference between a good man and a coward? I'll give you a second. <laughs> what do you do when your kids are playing in a field and a wolf suddenly jumps the fence? Do you take off? No. No, you see, in this world that's sick with evil and sin and danger, what we desperately need is someone who will not run away from the wolves. We need a savior who is willing to walk into the eye of the storm and pull us out of it. That is what Mark presents to us in our text today. In Mark 15, we have an account, a simple account, of a first century Jewish peasant who was put to death on a Roman cross. But this is no ordinary man. And this is no ordinary death. We can summarize the meaning of our text this way. In his suffering and death, Jesus is revealed to be both God and Savior. You see, it, it's precisely in the suffering and death of Jesus that his identity and his redemptive work are shown to be what they are. 
on the cross, Jesus proves that he is the good shepherd. At his weakest, most vulnerable moment, Jesus is putting on display the depth of God's love and his power. Our text gives us three simple points today. Point number one, a clash of worldviews, verses 21 to 32. Point number two, God's wrath and God's love, verses 33 to 39. And point number three, the witnesses, verses 40 to 47. I think what you'll find as we walk together through this text is that the mocking crowd gives voice to a powerful lie, a lie that is still at work. If we pay careful attention, we will notice that this lie is still at work in our hearts to this day. But Jesus' entire attention is not on the crowd. It's on the work that's taking place between himself and his Father, a work that will ultimately crush him and free us. Let's look at point number one, a clash of worldviews. Uh, the story picks up where Ron left off last week. Jesus was arrested while praying on Thursday evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. He endured a trial before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, that lasted all night Thursday night. And on Friday morning at sunrise, about six in the morning, he's taken to Pilate to receive his sentencing. We know how the story goes. Pilate can see that Jesus is innocent, but nonetheless he orders that Jesus be scourged and crucified in order to satisfy the crowd. The ESV defines scourging this way, a Roman judicial penalty consisting of a severe beating with a multi-lashed whip containing embedded pieces of bone and metal. That's what our Lord endured. So we should not be surprised as our text starts today that Jesus cannot carry his own cross. And the soldiers force a bystander named Simon to carry it for him. Simon and Jesus and the soldiers march together just outside the city to an infamous place, a place of a skull. And there, Jesus is crucified. Take a look with me at verse 24. And they crucified him. Mark could hardly be any more understated in his account of something that must have been quite horrific. And we need to take note of his understated approach to the physical suffering of Christ. You see, it seems as you read through the account that Mark's interest is not primarily in dwelling on the physical aspects of Jesus' pain. That's because there's something deeper than physical suffering going on here. Instead, Mark continues to focus on the mocking of the crowd. And if you remember, if you were here the last couple of weeks, we've been dwelling on the mocking of the crowd for a couple of weeks now. Mark has a point that he wants to drive home. Verses 29 to 32 all highlight the taunting. But look at 31 and 32 in particular. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. What are they saying? 
if you were truly the Messiah, then you wouldn't suffer. If you were really the king of Israel, you would not die. What kind of a hero dies? A real savior would come down from that cross and start dealing with our real problems. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're being oppressed by godless Romans. Our economy is corrupt, and the tax collectors are stealing all of our money. They're evil prostitutes and greedy businessmen and violent criminals ruining our society. If you're our Messiah, deal with the real issue. Get off that cross that we may see and believe. This is not empty mocking. The chief priests and scribes are giving voice to a lie, a powerful lie, a worldview that's as common as the air that you and I breathe to this day. It's the lie that we do not need anyone to die for us. All we need is a little help. The lie that our biggest problem is somewhere out there, not in here. You see, they're looking for a merely human savior. They're looking for maybe a self-help guru or a victorious military commander or a super Pharisee who will reward all those who obey the rules and punish everyone who doesn't. But I am so thankful that that's not what the Lord came to do. Commentator James Edwards puts it this way. The taunt assumes that salvation of self is the greatest good. The surest vindication of a would-be Messiah is therefore the ability to save himself. Jesus, however, has not taken upon himself the mission of self-help and self-fulfillment. He will be a ransom for others. Friends, this perspective is not limited to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not limited to the bad guys. You see, back in Mark chapter 8, Peter makes an extraordinary decision to rebuke the Lord Jesus. I'll let you think about that for a second. What, what prompted Peter to take this extraordinary step? Well, here's what Mark 8, 31 and 32 has to say. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this to them plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What caused Peter to rebuke Jesus? It was Jesus' determination to go to the cross. Whether you are a disciple or a Pharisee, we do not want to believe that suffering is part of God's plan of redemption. We do not want to believe it. The world does not want a suffering savior. The world wants Thor making dad jokes and killing the aliens with lightning bolts. But the world needs, the world desperately needs a suffering savior. And while the crowd is taunting and mocking, God is beginning to reveal something astounding. You see, as Mark recounts the details of Christ's death, we should start to notice something. Several of these details match up with a well-known psalm, a psalm that the children of Israel would have sung on their way up to Jerusalem. It's Psalm 22, and the psalm has to do with the unjust suffering of a righteous man. Now, in this psalm, David expresses confidence that at the right time, God will vindicate the righteous. 
there are several parallels with our text. Verse 24 of Mark 15 mentions that the soldiers divided Jesus' garments and cast lots to see who would take each garment. That is almost exactly the text of Psalm 22, 18. Verse 29 says that all those who passed by derided Jesus. And he makes an interesting point that they were wagging their heads, adding emphasis and spite to their mockery. Well, Psalm 22, 7 says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. In verses 30 through 32, it's insinuated that if Jesus were really the Messiah, he would come down off that cross. And then we hear echoes of Psalm 22:8, And all of this culminates in verse 34 when Jesus himself cries out, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. God is trying to get our attention here this afternoon. While the crowd is mocking, while the crowd is looking with their scoffing and looking with derision on the cross, while the crowd is claiming that a true Messiah would not die, God is contrasting that with Psalm 22. God is telling us, no, the crowd may mock, but I am fulfilling a prophecy that was written hundreds of years before this moment. God is working toward the culmination of a plan that he made before time began. The crowd is wrong. God's plan does include the suffering of the righteous. And Mark wants us to know that Jesus' suffering is not just part of the plan, it is the master stroke. And that brings us to point number two. God's wrath and God's love. One of my favorite songwriters, his name is Andrew Peterson, and there's a line in one of his songs that goes like this. I remember how the sunlight turned to thunder and the people ran for shelter from the rain and the curtain tore and the saints awoke and the whole earth seemed to tremble from the fury of God's anger or was it the fury of his love? In these brief seven verses in chapter 15, 33 to 39, we see God's anger and his love bound together in the most important moment in human history. Look with me at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There's darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Now, the Jewish people counted the hours of the day from sunrise at about 6 a.m. And so the sixth hour would be just about 12 o'clock noon. So from the sixth hour to the ninth hour is 12 to 3 usually the brightest hours of the day. So there could not be a more dramatic time for darkness to fall. Now, is Mark taking some poetic license here? Is, is he just trying to add some intrigue to the scene that he's writing about? Maybe it just got a little bit cloudy and Mark's like, ooh, I see an opportunity. Let's make my story a little more interesting. No. We have several reasons to believe that this is a dramatic, supernatural darkness. Um, other accounts tell us, like Luke, that the sun's light seemed to fail. We also know that normal, natural explanations for things like this, like a solar eclipse, are ruled out. Because Jesus and his disciples just celebrated the Passover a couple of days before, 
or we're just celebrating the Passover, and the Passover always falls on a full moon. And astronomers tell me that the full moon and a solar eclipse never coincide. I'll, I'll let you do the research. Uh, but we also know that it had an impact on the crowd. Matthew tells us that the crowd was in awe. Now something must have happened, because we know what the crowd was doing a few moments before. A few moments before, the crowd was laughing and mocking and jeering, but now something has changed their mind, and they're in awe. This is not a coincidence. The darkness was a divinely ordained symbol. God has always used darkness as a symbol. You might think of scriptures like Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. Or 1 John 2.11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness. Or you might remember the ninth plague when God was setting his people free from slavery in Egypt. And we're told in Exodus 10, 21, that God caused a darkness that could be felt to fall on the land of Egypt for three days. This darkness at Golgotha was a sign. It was a sign of sin and judgment. And Jesus' cry on the cross confirms the unthinkable that judgment is falling on him. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is bearing God's judgment? Surely not. God's wrath is falling on him? Why? Friends, the entire gospel of Mark was written to answer that question. What is the significance of the suffering and death of Jesus of Nazareth. In verses 38 and 39, Mark gives us the answer to that question. The moment that Jesus took his last breath, we have arguably the two most important verses in the entire book of Mark. We need to give our full attention this afternoon to the temple curtain and the centurion. Take a look at verse 38. Well, we'll start with 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We need to review a little bit of Israel's history if we're going to understand the importance of this verse. The temple in Jerusalem was incredibly significant to the children of Israel. Large portions of the Old Testament are dedicated to the history of this temple the construction of it, instructions about how the services of the temple are to be carried out. It was the visible expression of the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. Now, this covenant was an elaborate system of laws and purification rites and priests and Levites and layer upon layer that stood between God and his people. But it was all designed so that the pure, holy creator of the universe could dwell with a sinful, broken people. It was designed for their protection. It was designed to create fellowship between a holy God and an unholy people. The temple was ground zero for the whole covenantal system. The sacrifices took place at the temple. God's presence dwelt in the temple. And the temple was designed in a specific way. 
It was designed to keep people out of the most important room, the room where God's presence was said to dwell, a room called the Holy of Holies. There was a heavy, thick tapestry that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, and that reminded everyone that they should not go in there, that it would be dangerous for them to go in there because they are stained with sin. Every time you see that tapestry, you're reminded of the distance between you and a holy God. But Mark tells us that when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. And he, he wants us to know that it was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? It's because he wants us to know who tore it. The sacrifice that ended the entire sacrificial system had just been made. And God the Father was removing the barrier between himself and his people. The final price for human sin and evil was paid once for all. And 1 Peter expresses it for all of us. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, just to make sure that we get the point, that we feel the full weight of what has happened, Mark tells us the first person who entered in when the curtain was torn, and it is the most unlikely first convert. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. To understand the significance of this confession, we've got to zoom out and remember the whole main thrust and theme of the book of Mark. Mark's gospel starts with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The entire book of Mark was written to get at the identity of Jesus. Who is this man and why did he die? But until this moment, no human in the story has seen the divinity of Christ. The words, you must be the son of God, have not come out of any human mouth. Now, some of the characters, like Peter, have called Jesus the Messiah. But in the prevailing Jewish culture, the Messiah was not thought to be divine. They thought he would be a human savior, like David or Samson. The first person that God chooses to reveal the whole truth about Jesus is a Roman soldier. This is purposeful. This is meant to get under our skin. This is meant to challenge our sense of morality and teach us something about the new criteria for relationship with God. You see, this centurion acts as the quintessential enemy. He's a Gentile, first and foremost, someone who would never be allowed even into the inner court of the temple, much less into the Holy of Holies. He's an oppressor of God's people. Israel is occupied by a hostile army, and he's the face of that army. He's a violent man who, is just, who has just that moment participated in the murder of Christ. Yet no doubt many in Israel would have preferred to see God judge this man rather than save this man. But that, my friends, is the whole point today. Every single one of us in this room, apart from the grace of God, 
we stand as an enemy of the holy God, and we cannot enter his presence. When the centurion made that confession and the curtain was torn in two, it wasn't only the centurion that was invited in. It meant that someone like me or someone like you with the darkness that you carry and the darkness that I carry, we were invited in too. Jesus' death inaugurated a new covenant between God and man. And the stipulations of this new covenant are very simple. Repent and believe. Turn away from your sin and trust the sufficiency of the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Trust in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our final point. The witnesses. Verses 40 to 47. Mark is going to conclude the crucifixion account with a curious cast of characters and an unusual amount of activity. First, we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. Apparently, he's a well-to-do member of the Jewish council. And then we're told that many of the women who supported Jesus in his life and ministry were present at his death, including Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And look in particular at the strange account in verses 43 to 45. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him, is he already dead? And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, why does Mark go out of his way to include this interaction with Pilate? And why mention all the people who were at Jesus' burial? Mark is writing approximately 30 years after Jesus' death. If there's no question about Jesus' death, and there's been a lot of time since that event to really hammer out the details, then why do we need this interaction with Pilate? Why do we need to know that Pilate triple-checked with the coroner? You know, did you check his pulse? Did you put your finger on it? You know, is he really, are you sure? Is he really dead? But there, there was a question about Jesus' death. Something happens on Sunday that throws all of Jerusalem into confusion. And now, it is extremely important that there were many witnesses at the grave. Mark is giving us proof that Jesus did actually die. And second, I think we see another subtle evidence of God's grace in this account of the events immediately following the crucifixion. You see, in Jewish society, as in many societies throughout history, uh, women were not treated equally with men. They did not have the same rights. They were something of second-class citizens. Perhaps more unique to Jewish society, wealthy people were considered to be often morally inferior. They were sellouts. They were living for money and material things rather than living for God. But here we see God's grace. At the most important moment in history, the crucifixion of God the Son, who stood with him? Who was there? Well, it was the rich man and the women. Oh, the disciples aren't even mentioned in this account. They're hiding. They're running. 
they're scared. But these, Joseph of Arimathea and many women who followed Jesus in his life and ministry, they had the courage to stand by him to the end. God is gently demonstrating that it is not our class, it is not our gender that will determine our relationship with him, but it is our faith in God the Son. In closing this afternoon, I want to I want to leave you with a question. What do you see when you look at the cross and the tomb? It is so easy to inwardly scoff at the cross. You know, even we know that the lost world tends to look at the cross with indifference. We know that the lost world looks and says, "How in the world is this accomplishing anything?" you know what, even for those of us who have walked with Christ for decades, we can drift into a functional indifference as it relates to the cross. You know, our, our circumstances, our desires, our own suffering, these things, they tend to loom large in our hearts. And we can find ourselves standing right next to the chief priest and saying something that sounds like this. It's great that you saved me from my sin, but I really wish you would get down off that cross and dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank today. What is that thing or things that tends to rise to the top of your list when you think, you know, I really wish God would, he would really be my savior if, what would that be? See, even those of us who have walked with Christ for years, we can drift back into a mindset where we have forgotten that the biggest enemy we had was slain on that cross. Not Jesus, but he went into the storm and dealt with our sin. All the other things, the circumstances, the suffering, all the other things we might put in that box, oh, a distant second. We know, and Paul knows, the Bible tells us on every page that not everybody will see what Christ accomplished on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24 says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. My friends, we need to look again and again and again. We need to look at the cross until our hearts are freshly moved by who Jesus is and what he did. I think that Sally Lloyd-Jones in her popular children's Bible captures this moment well, and we'll close with this. Even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook. Rocks split in two. Until it seemed that the whole world would break. That creation itself would tear apart. The full force of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on his own son instead of his people. It was the only way that God could destroy sin and not destroy his children whose hearts were filled with sin. As we leave today, I hope that every heart can cry out with that centurion, truly this was the Son of God. Let's pray.
Father, as the worship team comes up and we prepare to sing, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts in a fresh way exactly what happened on the cross that day 2,000 years ago. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to comprehend the great love that you poured out on us when you poured out your wrath on him. And I pray that you would open our mouths so that we can sing with great joy and thanksgiving and sing about the glory of the Son. In Jesus' name, amen.